The year is 1967, and you might want to sit down before you fall down. The movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. We've already gone through the AFI list. We are now on our own journey each couple of weeks, picking a mini-series where we explore a genre, not fully, but just a little bit. And right now we're in the middle of Fucked Up Families, coming off of our Wes Anderson episode last week. And it's really interesting, Amy, because I've seen... Uh, a couple of articles recently covering movies that we've been talking about here on the show. For example, I saw an article all about how The Thing is the best horror movie of all time. And I all thought of us. All time. All time. Bold statement. Bold statement. But uh, I love that our, our listeners were on the ball at that. I also saw a list of the best Coen Brothers films. And you know where Raising Arizona fit on that list? Well, if it's not in the top three, then I will burn that list. I will set it on fire. Nine. Nine? Nine. Nine. Yeah, that Ooh. felt that felt really, really uh, bizarre to me because uh, I kept on going like, well, it's definitely in the top three. No, nine. Uh, wow, Miller's are they Crossing just big Ladies Killers it. fans? Like, what's going on with that? Ladies Killers was the worst, <laughs> which is the easy one to yeah. call the worst. Uh, mm. And uh, and then I was looking a little bit more about uh, Wes Anderson, and there's a lot of uh, I read a lot of interesting articles about Moonrise Kingdom. I don't know why people were talking about that, or maybe my computer's just listening to me and uh, and just tracking what I'm typing in. Uh, maybe that's what I'm doing. But that's uh, just me. I'm tracking, and I'm. <laughs> putting things on your computer when you're not looking. But I, I will tell you, I've been listening a lot to the Rushmore soundtrack. That was the big takeaway for me last week. I've been like, oh, I love that soundtrack so much, and it's so good. Well, and for people who were here when we began season two with our Back to School miniseries, and we did an episode on Cooley High, and we had that amazing guest, Glenn Turman, there's a really, really, really good career-spending interview up with him right now that Alan Sepinwall from Rolling Stone just oh. did this week. It is awesome to get to hear from him. Like, talking to him was one of the highlights of that series for me. And it's a really great piece. Alan is a good interviewer. Good job, man. Amy, before we actually get ready to get into today's film, um, we have a special connection to a film that's coming out this week in theaters, and quotes, and on video on demand. Uh, it is uh, Arch Enemy, directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer, who you might know as the director of uh, Daniel Isn't Real, which I loved. One of my favorite standouts of South by Southwest a year or two ago, whenever I saw it. Ah, I sat behind you when you saw that. And it meant a lot to me that you loved it so much because, and I don't like to talk about it that much in public because it's weird since I'm a critic and he's a director, but Adam E. Mordor is my boyfriend and I love him very much. And I you are amazing it. in this film. I mean, oh, this, this, is, this is this is a wild fall. Your scene in this film is one of my favorite scenes. Like, um, it's so fun. And I love this movie. And it's a very cool premise. Uh, Joe Manginello uh, plays a superhero, uh, or let's put that in quotes, who has been kind of blasted through the universe from his home planet. Now he's here on Earth without his powers or he's kind of lost. And we don't know if he's just someone who's wrestling with uh, some demons, maybe psychologically not all there, or he really is a superhero. And it's this 
really interesting subversion of the superhero genre that also embraces everything that we love about the superhero genre. It's cool, it's interesting, and it's totally like unlike anything I've seen in, in quite some time. And you have a tattoo on your head that says that mm-hmm. you are a genius, but it is I do. the J. It's spelled wrong. <laughs> I have a crown of thorns on my head and it is the best tattoos I've ever got. So if you want to see me in a red, red, uh, tidy, tidy undies, uh, this is a movie for you. But it, it is a movie of great performances all around. And uh, and if you've not seen Adam's stuff, you got to check it out. But it's on VOD. The movie is called Arch Enemy. And I think you will really, really uh, like it. And everybody I've talked to has really loved it. And we saw it at the the drive-in. And the reaction to that at uh, Beyond Fest was so cool. So uh, I feel very confident recommending it to you. Oh, I'm so glad. It made it worth it to me that I like rented that like classic muscle car for us to drive to the drive-in. Oh, and awesome. you know, since we can't have like a red carpet anymore yeah. like, the year, in this year, I didn't realize how much I hated muscle cars. They terrified me. I thought I'd be oh, like yeah, all they're, badass they're and like sprawled on yeah. the hood. And I was like, I'm going to literally die in this car. I'm going to ah. die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It is worth it. You know, I'm so excited to talk about this uh, particular fucked up family today. We're talking about uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I didn't know much about this film. I didn't know. Well, we'll get into what I didn't know about it. But I was thinking a lot about how this film is kind of carrying over into the now with, you know, movies like The Happiest Season, which uh, Clea Duvall just recently directed Mm -hmm. with uh, Kristen Stewart. And even the Hallmark Channel uh, is doing... Uh, some gay family-themed Christmas films. And I feel like, in a weird way, there is some connective tissue between this. This idea of, like, bringing in a new normal to mm-hmm. something a little bit more traditional. And I I couldn't help but see the similarities between uh, that and this and how relevant this film still is. And I, I just can't, like, can't wait to talk about it. But I just wanted to know if that kind of, you know, registered with you as well. I love that idea of a new normal because I think... To have something like The Happiest Season and just have the fact that like Kristen Stewart and um, the amazing Mackenzie Davis are just, you know, in a lesbian couple figuring out how to navigate Mackenzie's like tight, tight, straight laced parents. To have it just be the way that life is. I I feel like that's almost the greatest test of where we are as a culture. And that movie is so fun, by the way, even though I mean, are you one of the people just screaming at the TV that Kristen Stewart has to just start dating Aubrey Plaza because come on. I mean, you want it. Yeah, of course. Of course. Come on. Yeah. No, hands down. Hands down. And by the way, they should have not, you know, punched a hole through Jane's painting. That was not cool. And I'm still mad about that, too. (laughs) Well, these are kind of like companion pieces as we're exploring some older fucked up families. We have some newer ones along the way, kind of uh, treading similar ground. And what's so interesting about this film today is it was an original AFI uh, top 100 film. It was kicked off the list, not to be put back on. And it is kind of shocking because this is also a movie that came out the same year as In the Heat of the Night. Um, and I wonder if that kind of cannibalized each other, even though they are incredibly different stories. Um, if on some level, because they had the same star the same year, uh, they weren't allowed to coexist. And, and I do think it's a shame uh, that this one was kicked off the list. But maybe I should hold some of those thoughts until we unspool it. The year is 1967. President Johnson asked for a 6% tax increase to pay for the Vietnam War. Shortly thereafter, teachers strike for a meager 
pay increase. Americans suffer through the race riots, war protests, and general social unease. Muhammad Ali refuses to be inducted into the U.S. Army and therefore is stripped of his boxing world champion title. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court stipulates that an interracial marriage is legal throughout the United States in the case of Loving versus Virginia. Thurgood Marshall becomes the first black justice on the Supreme Court in April. Elvis marries Priscilla. The Beatles release Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album. And Rolling Stone magazine releases its very first publication. The popular movies were Casino Royale, Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Dirty Dozen, and today's film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, let's take a listen to a little clip. Are you saying they don't have any special sense of rhythm? <laughs> That's right. But hell, you can see it. You can't turn on a television set anywhere without seeing those kids dancing. And I say the colored kids are better than the white kids. But there's an explanation for that. It's our dancing and it's our music. We brought it here. I mean, you can do the Watusi, but we are the Watusi, if you know what I mean. I remember when I was about your age, my sports editor telling me that Negroes would never be able to play baseball. Now, I suppose if he wanted to, Willie Mays could be elected mayor of San Francisco. I own a newspaper, but I couldn't be elected dog catcher. I don't guess you want to be dog catcher any more than he wants to be mayor of San Francisco. No, I suppose that's right. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Guess who's coming to dinner? It is a whirlwind day in the life of three couples, a priest and a maid. Uh, San Francisco liberals Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy are stunned when their young daughter, played by Catherine Houghton, comes home from vacation with a fiancé that she just met. The fiancé is a prestigious doctor. He's 14 years older, he's widowed, and he is black. He's played by Sidney Poitier at the height of his box office powers, and the house gets even more crowded when his parents decide to fly up to to crash dinner. Um, his parents are played by B. Richards and Roy Glenn. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was directed by Stanley Kramer, a filmmaker who loved turning hot button topics into blockbuster hits. We actually already talked about Stanley Kramer a bit in our episode on High Noon. He produced that film, the film that was all about communism. When Stanley Kramer came up with the idea to make Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, interracial marriage was actually still illegal in over a dozen states. He wanted this movie to push that conversation forward. But between when the film wrapped and then when it came out, as you mentioned, Paul, uh, interracial marriage became legal across the country. So when the film finally opened, like six months later, on December 12th, 1967, audiences wound up flocking to it. They thought that this film was like a huge, cheerful, self-satisfying popcorn hit. It felt like they had their wishes fulfilled. Or as the number one song on the radio would have it, like we were now a nation of daydream believers. I love that song. And it's really interesting that it's a number one song in a year where there is a lot of turmoil, right? Like you wouldn't think that such a poppy hit would be uh, number one on the chart when so much is going on in the world or specifically in our country. You mentioned uh, and I mentioned uh, Loving versus Virginia, but also this is the year that Martin Luther King is assassinated. And there's a line in the film also about that, that they wanted them to cut. Like, who are you going to invite over? Martin Luther King. And they needed to keep it in the movie for the scene to make sense. But there was so much that was going on. This film 
uh, was captured in a moment. And by the time it was out in the theater, things really were changing around it. The country was really changing. Yeah, it's true. And I think that maybe one of the things we're going to wind up talking about a lot is that when you make a piece of art or when you make a statement that attempts to capture a moment that is really tumultuous and changing every month, you can make something that really, I think, capitalizes on a mood and then can immediately feel dated. Because I think Guess Who's Coming to Dinner has gotten also a lot of slack for having, you know, dated attitudes. Like, here we are having Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn being awkward and being like, your marriage isn't going to be legal in states. And what's going to happen to you? And saying things even six months later, it was kind of tempting to be like, we solved it. Everything's fine. And then the film becomes kind of patronizing. I, I think in a way... We're talking about a film that I think has a lot of parallels to something like, I don't know, Green Book, to be honest, or maybe like how we're going to think of something like The Happiest Season in 40 years. It's it's hard to be of the moment and timeless. See, I, I will disagree with you because I think at its core, this film is timeless. I think that this film, while there might be a couple of things that feel a little uh, simplistic, it's still rooted in a core issue that I think a lot of people have, right? And what I loved about this film was our two leads, which Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy are liberal, I would say, and I'm putting this on them uh, because I don't know of the time if they would be called Democrats, but I feel like they're very liberal. They're hip. Yeah, they they're in the arts. Democrats. He's got like yeah. a picture of FDR on his desk. Yeah, they're 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 what you would, I think, call like this coastal elite, right? But when this problem comes in, the way they react to it is, I think, actually one of the best parts of the film because it shows like, oh, I can be outwardly some way, but then when it comes into my house, how do I deal with it? And I think that that's kind of a, a battle that we're always facing. Like, who am I when it doesn't affect me? And who am I when it actually is, you know, on my table. And I thought that was such a smart move. They didn't, they weren't like, you know, people that were quote unquote, like Hicks from the South, like, oh my God, they are they're not racist. Um, but yet they have these attitudes. And I think it like this whole movie just shines a light on this, like invisible caste system that we live under and, and does it so well. And, um, right, so that yeah, not in my backyard kind of thing. It would yeah. Do the film's credit. I like that. Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy's characters, and they're just such big stars. I'm just going to be calling them Catherine Hepburn and Spencer yeah, Tracy this absolutely. entire film instead of calling them, you know, the Draytons. But that they're aware enough of who they are. You know, he's like a, a real rabble-rousing newspaper editor. I mean, you'd kind of imagine him as like the good version of you know, William Randolph Hearst or Citizen right. Kane, you know, who's like really promoting like liberal progressive causes, starting fights. Catherine Hepburn is the same way. She's in the art world. She's She also considers herself very liberal-minded. And yet that they have this pause makes them stop and take stock of who they are and what they really do stand for. Like that conversation where they're like, we raised our daughter to be like this. She's 23 years old and the way she is is just exactly the way we brought her up to be. We answered her question. She listened to our answers. We told her it was wrong to believe that the white people were somehow essentially superior to the black people. Or the brown or the red or the yellow ones, for that matter. People who thought that way were wrong to think that way. Sometimes hateful, usually stupid, but always, always wrong. That's what we said. And when we said it, 
We did not add, but don't ever fall in love with a colored man. No, I, and I think that, in a weird way, makes this film successful because it's not an indictment of culture that is assumed to be stereotypically racist, right? The Green Book, to a certain degree, is pointing the finger at, like, uh, I don't think that Viggo Mortensen is outwardly, I'm not a racist. I think he's very insular, and I think he's like, oh, I'm learning that people are kind of equal, right? Where here, we have these people who are like, no, I I would be in the march. I would be, I would write an article about that. I would have art in my gallery, you know, by people of color. And so there's something really interesting about that because you're not punching down, you're kind of punching up. And then this movie also brings in the idea of like youth and the influence of youth and how youth is constantly pushing us in uncomfortable positions. You even see that with uh, Sidney Poitier, who's older, like in the film, he's 37. And uh, and so he is more aware of how this is going to land. And it's not only because he's black. Yes, he is black, but he's also older. Um, and the youth seem in this movie to be kind of like, we're going to do whatever we want. And I think it's so beautifully personified with the delivery boy and the taxi cab driver, right? That's the two ends of the spectrum. And um, and it's a nice, subtle thing that's going through the film that I think uh, we're always we're always going to be at odds with. You know, you like there's always going to be something new. And I think you even see that right now in our culture uh, as we are. Yes, we're having a racial re- reawakening, but we're also like learning things about trans culture. And you can see people that are in their mid 30s like, well, what do I have to say? I don't want to say that. Or what are the words? What pick the thing? You know, like, I don't want to do these things. And, and then these are not older people. These are not 60 or 80 year old people. These are people who are like, I don't want to change my ways. And I think once you get out of that early 20s, you know, idea, you start to get locked in what you expect things to be. So I love that this movie is pushing forward race and uh, and also youth as these these hot button things that make us confront who we are. You know, I'm glad that you brought all of that up, that kind of generational framing so soon, because I've been thinking about that a lot, too, after watching this movie, this idea that. There's no way to be the perfect progressive forever without being very self-aware and doing a lot of active work to grow like a lot, like active, 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 active work. Cause yeah, like the words have changed since I was in my twenties, you know, and and I feel like myself, like that constant need to like grow and learn and stay abreast because I'm aware that no matter how progressive you think you are, if you freeze at a certain age or if you stop being engaged in learning, you will be behind, you know, every like, Every frozen progressive is like tomorrow's conservative. I mean, that goes for the people today who are like, I'm incredibly like progressive. Like, yeah, but you have to keep growing. I have to keep growing in order to not be hopelessly frozen, which is why I like so much that this movie cast um, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn in these roles because people had known them as actors at this point for over a generation. You know, they'd been busy since like the 20s and 30s and they had a reputation for both being very progressive, very like broad-minded, very um, forward-thinking among all of the Hollywood actors. And so to see, to kind of grow up with them and see them, to see the most progressive actors of their day, that you have, maybe if we saw a movie where George Clooney is like 80 years old and you're like, George Clooney's all behind now. He's turned into Clint Eastwood. You know, it's sort of like that. Yeah. Um, because of course, like Catherine Hepburn is the woman who was like wearing pants and everybody was yelling at her to, to put on a dress. Spencer Tracy 
had by this point made tons of really progressive, brilliant films, some even already with Stanley Kramer. Like he did a film with Stanley Kramer that was called um, Inherit the Wind. That was, I was on the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's all about like evolution and the battle to get science in and out of schools. He did a film called Judgment at Nuremberg, um, where he was about the trials, where he was the judge, like presiding over these trials. He did a film called Fury that I love so much that is all about lynching. Um, And so to see this tag team, let alone their personal stuff, which we'll get into later, be those people where history was passing them by is so fascinating, even if the way that they're kind of capturing like this new generation, like the rock music to us now seems really lame. I mean, listen to the rock music that they're putting forth in this movie as like super cool. No, you're right. And I think, but the reason why this movie is a success is because they're almost making fun of themselves. And I, I know it's not the totally right word, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's like, because they are liberals and because they are in this culture, and then we show them in this rich house, in this beautifully cultured world, you, it, I think, makes the movie way more endearing. And look, this movie barely was made with the two of them because Spencer Tracy was really not well. Uh, So much so that they had two shooting scripts for this film, one with him and one without him in case he was to have died. And he did die, I believe, like 17 days after the film wrapped. Uh, uh, He was that ill. His very last shot that he did in this film is when he's at um, the Mel's drive-in. And he has like the kind of back and forth conversation about ice cream with the waitress that, that I yeah. absolutely love. We, we just have to hear that for a second. Yes. Oh, well, when I had ice cream before, I had a, a special kind of flavor that I liked very much, but I can't remember what it was. I'll bring you the list here. Oh, no, you you must know what it is. Daiquiri ice, honeycomb candy, cocoa, coconut, jamoka almond fudge, mocha, jamoka, peanut butter and jelly, cinnamon, banana mint. It must have been some other place. Fresh Oregon boysenberry sherbet. That's it. That's it. I'm sure that's it. Pretty fresh Oregon boysenberry. By the way, fun fact, that actress in that scene um, playing like the ice cream car hop, uh, talking about like generations pushing stuff forward. She's not very well known, but I have to tell you the story about her. Her name is Alexandra Hay. And the very next year after she made this movie, she was in a play called The Beard. And here's what The Beard is about. It was like this imaginary romance between Gene Harlow and Billy the Kid, which are like, okay, fine, that's fine, that's cute. But at the very end of the play, Billy the Kid goes down on Gene Harlow, like for real, like for real, for real, for Whoa. real. And so that actress who played the car hop got arrested 12 times for lewd conduct. And then Whoa. finally um, was like acquitted by the California Supreme Court. <laughs> I had a fun fact for that scene, and it's nowhere near as good as that. I was just going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, did you know that the cab driver in the beginning of the film is actually uh, Spencer Tracy's uh, lifelong stuntman? And uh, and so that's why they look a little bit alike. But more importantly, he did all the stunts for this film and he did that car crash scene at the uh, at the little, you know, burger place or ice cream place, whatever it is, the car hop. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I love that he got his longtime stuntman in there and his longtime stuntman really gets like the first close up in the film because you have those opening scenes here of, you know, over that music, which we have to play a snippet of that. I get really sick of it. But here it is. Take a little and let your poor heart 
the story of That's the glory of love Over that song, which they play like 90 times, uh, you have these like kind of long distance scenes of like Sidney Poitier and Catherine kind of walking through and like helping her get her bags and being like the suavest men at the baggage carousel and seeing them like talk and laugh, but from really far away and you can't really hear what they're talking about. And then they get in this car and then you get that close up of the cab driver's eyes and you realize that this film is all going to be about how that couple is being seen through other people. You know? And it's a really smart visual way of telling you that story. That opening sequence is masterful because the song, as you just played, uh, invokes something and you're watching this relationship and you get everything that you need to know about these two. They're crazy for each other. They You, you make assumptions about how they are as far as uh, wealth and how they hold them. They, 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 they're, they're almost like walking on air. I feel like by the time that the dialogue starts, we are already 10 minutes into the film where other people would have laid so much exposition down, you know, on the airplane. And it's such a bold, nice move to let the audience. And I always, I mean, it's silly to say, but it's always impressive when a director has faith in the audience to look at the pictures, hear the music, create a picture that you don't need to explain. I think right now we live in a culture where it's like, can we just say it? Can we say it five Mm -hmm. more times? Can we say it? You're right. Although I will say, I feel like we get a little robbed of ever finding out what they do talk about. You know, because we don't really see them having like conversation, conversations, just the Mm. two of them later or like bonding or clicking. And that's actually that opening scene, I think, is the only time we even see them kiss. Like they do a little bit of like arm touching, but that we only get one really passionate clench between the two of them. And it's like when they're in the cab in the rearview mirror, so we don't even watch it. We're like watching somebody else watch it. I feel like we we get a little bit robbed of seeing their full their full connection. It's interesting because Catherine Houghton also was wrestling with this. There was an interview she did a couple of years ago uh, where she talked about the chemistry or the connection between these two characters, not the actors, but the characters. Uh, Take a listen. I've always thought that Joey, the character I played, was not as good, not, not up to the standards of the part Sidney played. And I said to Stanley one day, I just don't see why a man like Sidney Poitier would be interested in a girl like me, the way she's being portrayed. The only thing that I have going for me is I'm young and energetic and good-natured. And what have I done? Nothing. I have no accomplishments. And he kept saying a lot of times all through the film, Catherine, you, you just don't understand America. And really what he was seeing uh, was that if my character was too strong, that it would, it would damage the f- feelings of... It would, it would not sell the film as well as it... As it uh, if I were just a, a kind of happy Pollyanna innocent that perhaps um, people could buy the whole thing more. Now, I just don't know. I don't know what to say. I, I, say I, I said to him, I, I just don't agree with you. I think she has to prove at some point in the film that she's worth her salt, that, that her skin color doesn't matter either, that she doesn't get to have Prince Charming just because she's white. 
This is the kind of talk that would go on. And he'd say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're just wrong. But I know that, for instance, James Baldwin felt the same way I did. He felt that one of the greatest flaws in the film Mm. was that my character, that Joey, the only thing she had going for her was that she was white. What she's basically saying is she represents, or tell me if I'm wrong, like she represents life and, 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 and just a brightness and, and an airiness. There's a, a level of how could you not be attracted to someone who is just brimming with optimism? It, like you, it's almost like we're, or he is a vampire as we all are, like attracted to youth and, and, and that kind of joy. Sometimes, you know, this is a man whose wife and child, wife and child were killed in a train accident. And to see this woman who has so much brightness, I think that she brings that over to him, you know, uh, in a way. I, I mean, how did you read that quote? I mean, the same way or differently? Yeah, the same. Like, I think I think she has a really good point about that. And honestly, that's been a fun pattern we've seen in a lot of these movies with actresses from like the 60s and 70s talking about how they wish their character had been a little bit deeper. Mm. Yeah, I feel like we talked about that a bit when we were talking about Butch Cassidy and also in, you know, something like The Graduate. They're all kind of wishing their character had a little bit more to them. Um, and so I like that the actresses at the time are kind of like, we were trying, we were doing our best and nobody was really listening to us. Just to go back to the murder mystery analogy, I just want to say like, and the dead body in the room is why is this not okay? We all think it's okay, but why is it not okay? And and it is this idea of trying to unpack that. And, and you know, the, the end of the movie is as simple as, Love, like, look, why do we deny anybody love? If they are, if they're in love, what are we doing? And uh, I always go to this, like, Howard Stern quote, which I think is, uh, which I think is great. And, you know, however you think of Howard Stern, uh, he's definitely grown and become a more progressive person. No, I'm but, very excited for you to quote Howard Stern on um, to me. Uh, but no, it's like when people are railing against uh, gay marriage uh, or, you know, and how it's, how it attacks the institution of marriage, you know, he's always like, what does it affect you? Like, how does this affect your life? You know, if like you don't like it, but why, why would you want to stop somebody from living there? Like, it doesn't affect, like, it doesn't affect anybody. If two people want to get married in a ceremony, you're not being invited to that ceremony if, if you are having this much of a problem with it. And I think it's this like, idea of, again, it's like your backyard. It's like, but this idea of what does it, why does it affect you? The, the root of it is everyone should be afforded the same opportunities. Like, Love is love, and that's at the the base level that this movie kind of says. It's the opening song. It's everything there. It's like, that's what we should be looking at. But we are determining what what love is right, what love is wrong, and we constantly are doing this in our culture, and we're drawing these invisible lines. And so that's why I really, I'm really leaning against a lot of the negative critique on it, because I think its base level portrayal of all this stuff makes it timeless in the sense that you strip everything away and all we're looking at is the bones and the bones are never changing like people want to get married not because they want to shock the system not because they want to upset their next door neighbor they want to get married because they love this person and they want to be in a relationship or a green card i've seen a lot of movies or you know and uh, <laughs> you know and, or you know or with i just have to yeah. measure our depardieu <laughs> but like you know and 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 race 
a lot of times you could put a lot of barriers up to say, well, but this and that and this and this and but, 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 but it really comes down to you're not comfortable. Like that cab driver didn't like when they were kissing to go, what the fuck is going on? He kept it in, you know, and I think that that's more of our society. And I'm just like so excited about this movie because I, I, I felt like I've been reading this book and seeing this thing. And, and, and it's upsetting because all of this feels true on some level and the, the variations of it. Like, yes, there's like gaping jaws, eyes wide open, holding on those shots that are overtly comical. I mean, Sidney Poitier's parents, I mean, they think play that moment for like 12 seconds. I'm like, OK, we got it. But that aside, I, I think it is trying to be uh, a metaphor for what really the root of this is. And that's why I think that ending is so based. The ending is he what he realizes is like, fuck. What am I doing? Yeah, they're in love. Go, do it. Go. What do I care? I want to make my. I want my kids to be happy. I want, you know, I, I want everyone to have the ability that I have. I don't know. I like your metaphor that the body on the floor is the question of like, why is this okay? It, it's almost like the body on the floor is a straw man because that's what mm-hmm. everybody keeps pointing to. You know, like yeah. uh, Spencer Tracy's problem is not him. He's fine. But what right. is everybody else going to think? Are you going to be okay? Are they going to be mean to you? And the same thing with Sidney Poitier's parents. You know, that's very much like Roy Eaglen who plays his dad, his his point of view, like. What about everybody else? Not us, but everybody else. And so there's this mysterious like enemy, you know, that this mysterious shape of a person that doesn't even get that acknowledged really until the end of the film when Spencer gives that speech and he includes this idea of like the hundred million people in this country who aren't going to like you, which I have to say, like living through 2020 and living through this campaign and thinking about this country and how divided it is like that speech really hit home. Let's listen to it. There'll be a hundred million people right here in this country who will be shocked and offended and appalled at the two of you. And the two of you will just have to ride that out. Maybe every day for the rest of your lives. You can try to ignore those people or you can feel sorry for them and for their prejudices and their bigotry and their blind hatreds and stupid fears. But where necessary, you'll just have to cling tight to each other and say, screw all those people. So it's almost like they at the end of the at the end of the film, they look at the straw man on the floor and they just go, well, fuck that dead body. Right. They're like, he's dead. Let's just take him outside. You're right. They're throwing it out. But it's interesting how much reverence they give to it. I mean, even Sidney Poitier is like, if you say that we shouldn't throw this body away. I'm with you. Like the power that nothing has over people. It is a straw man. There's nothing there, but yet it has controlling power over everyone's lives. And I think we see it from so many different perspectives. Uh, Again, going back to the maid, you know, the maid's reaction is amazing. And so kind of progressive to see her rebel against it. Like, you, no, 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 no. This is not right. I don't like this. This is not the way things are done. Like, you don't know. It reminded me so much of Get Out. I mean, honestly, like I was like, oh, this is this is a comedy. Get Out is a play on this on this movie. I mean, of course it is. But I didn't know that because I never saw it. But I will go one step further and say this. My big my big theory on the film. And as we've been doing this second season, I've had a lot of big theories, but I'm going to run with this one right now and say I think this movie didn't need to go deep. And I think one of the things that a lot of the negative reviews uh, pick apart 
is the reality of this movie. Oh, you know, Sidney Poitier is unfallible. He is a doctor. He's good looking. There's nothing wrong with him. And, you know, I think he is as blank as she is as blank because what the movie is, it's not about who they are as people. It is how people view the color of their skin and the station in life. And that's all you need, right? Any other complicating factor makes this movie less clean to me, right? Because if you elevate this man, like I agree that no one is perfect and everyone has their flaws, but by putting Sidney Poitier at this, this almost angelic, uh, you know, and, and her too, they, they're so um, simply drawn people, right? You you see them and you get them. It lets the movie live in, well, what are you rebelling against? Simply the 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 melanin in their skin, right? Or in his skin. Like that, that's it. Like there's nothing else there. There's no other argument. And I think that that distills this issue of what these problems often are. It's not about who they are, where they're from. It really comes down to you are different. And now I'm going to have an issue with that. And, and that's what I think, I don't think people got. I think people wanted to see like, well, I wish it was a little bit more. And, it, you know, it showed that it can be more complex. It doesn't need to be more complex. And this is, I'm going back to this idea. I'm in the middle of reading this book called um, uh, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And it's an amazing book. And it really speaks to a lot of things in this in this film. But this idea that there is a hidden caste system in our culture, right? And there are ways that we just, even the most progressive uh, people have a tendency to just, uh, you know, continue building on that. And I think what this movie does so eloquently is show that. And especially with the maid, the maid character who also is keeping the caste system in place. She's like, no, 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 this is wrong. You can't do this. Like, like it, it makes everybody is playing into a role simply based on no details other than the color of skin, even his parents. So that's what I thought was, I know we're going to talk about this in a bigger thing, but that's really what I wanted to kind of put forward is that I think some of the um, base nature of this that people slagged on is there purposely because it eliminates any debate. It, it makes it so centered on really the crux of, I think, how people... Uh, make these decisions. They can hide behind the specifics. Well, I think this, but here it really just puts the skin color as the only thing. I mean, I think that's fair. They they are both so blank that it's like, I don't know, for some reason I'm trying to picture like trying to grab like a gigantic bullet covered in ice. Like you just kind of can't right. hold on to anything about them. I don't know anything about um, him. So like, so, the, so you're not watching a movie and you're like, well, the thing is, is like, She's a vegetarian and he loves meat. And I just don't see how like day in, day out, they're even going to get along on meal planning. Like there's nothing even right. like that. Or he's really tidy and she's very messy. Like they, they give you nothing else to quibble with. But it is something that I think even Sidney Poitier wrestled with a lot. Like he he got into it. Like he wrote a really interesting memoir that came out a few years ago. And what he wound up saying, you know, because he was really sensitive to the criticism that people said his character was too perfect. And that that was a criticism that honestly haunted him throughout his whole career. You know, that he was always playing people who were cooler than cool, smarter than smart, tougher than tough, as we saw in in The Heat of the Night, or here, just like an impossibly brilliant, talented, like 
a doctor who has like the respect of everybody, including the World Health Organization. And he was like, you know, to me, yeah, what's the message? And he said, is it either one, that black people will be accepted by white society only when they're twice as white as the most accomplished Ivy League medical graduate, or that black society does, of course, contain individuals of refinement, education and accomplishment, and that white society, of course, should wake up to that reality. And so he found himself, I think, in this really tough position because there's points to be made on both sides, you know, and he was wrestling with it. And he found that his approach, I think, fell out of favor pretty much right after this movie came out. You know, people were like, they wanted to see Sidney Poitier get angry. You know, they wanted to see like, they wanted to see, I think, a character that they felt like reflected this immediately changing times more. And he didn't. And so when black exploitation starts to rise, like shortly after this, that did channel some more animosity. Like he, he kind of, he went from being like the top box office star to being vaguely like uncomfortable. Like we're not sure how we feel about you so fast. I mean, it kind of a dizzying speed. It's interesting that he took the brunt of it because obviously, again, he's a person of color. So you can kind of say, well, he made the mistake, not uh, Stanley Kramer, not, not the, you know, not the writer and director. Uh, he's the actor. Yes, he's produced and he was big, but it's like, it's interesting how I think a lot of times you see uh, women take the brunt of these things like, well, she didn't do a good enough job. Her character wasn't well-rounded. She'll never work again. Um, But there, you know, there is something with this idea of how this movie is structured. And I was thinking about it. It's, it's a murder mystery, right? In a certain way, like something comes in, something happens, and then everyone starts to... Uh, well, I think this and I think this. Well, I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to get my clues. I'm going to get my evidence. I'm going to bring in these people now. And so much so that the ending of the film is is Hercule Poirot. It's 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 this speech. This is what I learned. This is what I talked to. <laughs> I was thinking this is what Columbo. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I would have gotten Columbo uh, if I, I tried to be smart. Uh, really dropping that Kenneth Branagh because that's my Poirot. Uh, <laughs> no, but, um, Mary, but it's like, like, it's yeah. like a British comedy, right? It's like, everybody's in this manor house. You have this artificial deadline slapped mm-hmm. onto the whole thing. Like they show up around lunch, they're eating sandwiches. And then they're like, we're getting on a plane tonight to fly to Geneva. And we want to get married. We want to know that we have your blessing before we get on a plane tonight at 1045. And then, so everybody has to figure this all out really quick. And, you know, and Sidney Poitier does the thing where he like goes to the parents and he says, if we don't get your blessing, I'm not going to marry your daughter, which to me, I feel a bunch of different ways about. I'm like, if I was Catherine Hepburn and a guy came to me and said, like, I'm not going to marry your daughter unless you say that it's OK. Part of me would be like, do you really love my daughter? Like, you're really going to walk away because he phrases it in such a way where he's like, I just don't want to deal with that. I'm like, right. oh, I don't know. But I think that that's also a 37-year-old man who also isn't as confident in his decision as the 24-year-old girl that he's with who is throwing caution to the wind. He's still, he is, there are three levels uh, or maybe four levels of different types of attitudes, right? He is going to go with that attitude, but he's also respectful of, and I keep on using that term, uh, caste system, like where he fits into it. And she's like, I don't care about that caste system. And then his parents are like, well, we, there is no caste system, but we have issues. And, but I, th- overall, yeah, she's what, sort of like this cannonball kind of like yeah. hurtling through the house. And he's, when you watch his physical language in here, like 
his character's always getting up, getting the seats, doing this, being mm-hmm. nice. Like he is so attentive to everybody else's needs. And the daughter is not a sociopath. She's incredibly charming and friendly, but she's just like, my needs are what matter, you know, or our needs. Like she doesn't really see. I It's like, yes. she just doesn't see walls. And like the Look, her, her parents are pretending that the walls don't exist, but they're aware of them. And then he's incredibly aware. And everybody's like, why are you being so weird? My kids are four and six right now. And they're going to grow up in a world where gay couples are no big deal, right? It's not going to be anything different than anything in their life. You know, that's something that for me growing up in the way that I did, it was something that I was exposed to uh, definitely as I, you know, high school and then definitely into college. It was something that obviously was going on, but it was something I was slowly exposed to. Right. And this is kind of the attitude that she has is like, I, what, what is the issue? I'm here. I'm young. And and I love that idea about her. And I and I think that, you know, uh, Sidney Poitier's character is just like looking the entire time. He's like watching, watching, watching. He's monitoring everything, trying to balance everything. He understands how to walk in this world. It must have been so hard to be Sidney Poitier. It is interesting how much his name has come up even outside of like the films we've talked about with him. You know, that how many times we've been like talking about an actor who would say, well, my career was really stuck in like the six, in the 60s because all the good roles were either offered to Sidney Poitier. And if you turn them down, then they were, you know, right. just recast as a white person. And so I keep thinking, you know, this week about how much attention is like directed at Sidney Poitier and like what it must, the pressure it must have been like to be him, which was what I was really thinking about when I was reading his autobiography. And by the way, we talked a little bit about his backdrop when we did In the Heat of the Night. But just for people who haven't heard that episode yet, you know, He's from the Bahamas. He has this interesting childhood where he was like born premature. He was he weighed less than three pounds. And um, his dad went and like bought a coffin. His dad was like, well, this kid's not going to last. So he bought a coffin. Whoa. And his mom, instead of buying a coffin, took 50 cents and went to go see a psychic. And she said, you know, my, my kid is probably dying. I don't know. What do you think? And the psychic said, he's going to grow up to walk with kings. And she was like, whoa. And so she told the dad not to allow the coffin in the house. And then Sidney Poitier did grow up and like became this towering figure, you know, almost by accident. Like he leaves um, Nassau for Florida when he's 15. He slowly makes his way up to New York. Like he's really starving and hungry and broke. Like he's so broke that when he's 17, he joins the army just because they'll feed him. He lies about his age and joins the army just to like get square meals. And then as soon as he's in the army, he's like, what have I done? I've made the biggest mistake of my life. And so to get out of it, he went and met with his commanding officer and threw a chair at him, like at kind of in quotes, like he deliberately missed, but he wanted to be close enough that they would then take him to psychiatric evaluation and kick him out of the army, which is what happened. Um, But he saw he talked about how those sessions with a therapist, you know, like, am I crazy? What am I mad about? Were actually really important for him. And then he does become an actor kind of just because he sees an advertisement in a paper. He's like, He's working as a news, uh, as a dishwasher. He sees an ad for actors. He's like, well, I can wash dishes. Maybe I can do that. And he wasn't that great at the beginning, um, but that he made an impression on one of the biggest agents in town because, you know, he wasn't offered any roles. And then finally he's offered this one role that's going to pay him a ton of money, like $750 a week to play a black man whose daughter gets killed and doesn't really do much about it. And Sidney Poitier just turned it down. He, like, couldn't even put his finger on, like, exactly why, except that he hated how passive that character was. And the agent tracked him down six months later and was like, 
okay, you're a dishwasher who's never worked in a play before and you're turning that job down. You're turning down $750 a week. And he said, anybody this crazy, I want to represent. And that is how Sidney Poitier like started to get work wow. in the acting business. And then he event- pretty soon after that, he gets the attention of Stanley Kramer. And Stanley Kramer puts him in the film that gets him his very first Oscar nomination. And we talked about this before. It's like a decade before um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. But it was called The Defiant Ones. I don't mm-hmm. know if we talked about it when we were doing a movie with Sydney or if, when we were doing a movie with Tony Curtis. But I it's the movie yeah. where they're both like ex-convicts and they're handcuffed together and they have to try to escape. I'm a strange colored man, a white South Town. How long you think before they pick me up? Get off my back. I ain't married to you. Now, what do I care? Come on. You married to me, all right, Joker. And here's the ring. But I ain't going south on no honeymoon now. We going north. But yeah, so then he goes on this this tear of Oscars and Oscar nominations and being in like huge films. I mean, guess who's coming to dinner? This is a film with like three Oscar winners. You know, it is like a heavy hitter when he's well, in he's it. he's but up it against still, himself like, moment... this year, right? I mean, he's he's up yeah, against yeah in the heat of the night. This is also the year where like people are turning on him. Like I, I found this piece about him. Um, there's a really famous black playwright called Clifford Mason who wrote about him for the New York Times, and he wrote this article called. Why does white America love Sidney Poitier so? And in it, he gets into his problems with Sidney Poitier on film. You know, he says that he says the word sir too much. He says that he picks these characters that he calls like, quote unquote, mistreated puppies that get all the sympathy. And then he says his biggest problem is just that Sidney Poitier doesn't have roles. He doesn't either pick them or he's honestly, he's probably just not getting offered them that allow him to play like a full human by which he means like have any sort of like sexual charismatic magnetism, you know, to them that he, he's, he plays kind of these like flat characters that don't feel flesh and blood. And he says, what we need in a Sidney Poitier film is quote, a break with the concept that the world is only white. And that in these are his words, the Negro exists only in the white man's view of him that he felt like Sidney wasn't acting in films that belong to his story. Well, I mean, I would argue that you could make a strong case for that still in white cinema, right? I think the difference now is that there is more opportunities, but not not a gigantic amount of opportunities, you know, where, where you would elevate a black actor to be able to do all these things that a white actor could do. And, and yes, and there are, there are uh, examples that break that, but... If we're just talking majority-wise, I still think that there is a little bit of that segregation on how that all works and fits together. And we're getting better and better every year. I want to say something, But yeah, too. like I'm thinking about like even Samuel Jackson and Eve's Bayou. Like yes. how, how I hadn't realized that I'd never gotten to see him play a like yes, sexy, yes. seductive, charismatic, still slightly villainous like pillar of his community before. That, that I've seen so many Samuel Jackson films and I'd never gotten to see him like that. You know, it's not only him as it's not only any actor, right? Like they, these are the roles he's being put in and, and I can understand how the culture is changing around him and he seems to be pulling it backwards, right? Like, okay, he's not pushing enough forward. He's not, he's not doing enough to challenge expectations or you have this power. Why aren't you using it? I can see that. I can understand that. And I can understand how hard that must have been for him because without him, these stories don't get told. And this is a movie that becomes a huge hit. And the reason why it's a huge hit is because of this star power. It's, you know, this movie makes more money for Columbia than I think any movie that year and maybe any movie, 
in any recent. Movie, I think in their history, like yeah. any movie in all of Colombia's history, which is really ironic because they didn't want to make it, you know, to right. even get it across. Like uh, Stanley Kramer had to lie to them. He was like, I want to make a movie. It's going to have um, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy in it. It's going to be about families. And that was all he'd say. He's like, it's about families. And he like kept telling them it was about families until the last possible minute when they're like, we have to read a script, man. And so when he did, then they got really hesitant. And there's this kind of like he said, she said thing about the making of it where Columbia was like, they didn't want to come out and say, we don't want to make this film about interracial marriage because we think it's going to be an expensive disaster and nobody will see it. So instead they said, we don't want to make this film because Spencer Tracy's too sick and he can't get insurance. And they had a little bit of backing to them, you know, that right. Spencer Tracy at this point had been really sick for, you know, almost a decade. And like twice he'd said yes to roles, like once in a John Ford film, once in another, in another movie. And then he was too sick last minute to do the part. And so wow. Edward G. Robinson stepped in to do both of them. So there was enough of a background that they could kind of make that case but they couldn't get away with it because like Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy were like oh well we'll, we'll just um put our salary in escrow like if if he gets sick you don't have to pay us and you can and that's that why they're shooting with shoot everything yeah they're shooting with two scripts and they like are taking breaks when he's getting tired but I guess you know there is that idea like only certain people could break through that door, right? Like there's like, you know, not to say that the birdcage is incredibly revolutionary, but like I would imagine that the birdcage when it comes out, this is the Robin Williams, Gene Hackman birdcage with Nathan Lane. You know, there's something about Robin Williams leading this charge. We love Robin Williams. Oh, we'll accept these gay characters. Will and Grace. Like sometimes the first people through the door have to be bolder, maybe more blunted to you know, make the medicine go down and then you can start telling the more nuanced stories. And it's a shame that the first people through the door are, the fi- are getting the, the shots fired, right? Well, it wasn't enough. It was too broad. It was this. And all those things might be true, but you don't understand like the, the, the bullet that gets in is the one that makes the most impact because this movie is big. This movie becomes a rallying cry. This movie becomes a film that everyone's like, I can identify with this. It doesn't make me feel bad for the way I feel. It, it, it humanizes, it shows it from all different sides. And I'm not saying it's perfect and right. And, and, and it couldn't have been better, but acknowledgement of how hard it is to do something light. It's also light. This movie is not a heavy drama. This is, and that's the thing that, that really surprised me. I didn't realize it's like, it's comedic. It's, it's very funny. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. I was thinking about the birdcage too. Like, I'm really glad that you brought that up because Yeah, like, the closest parallel I think I have to this from, like, when I grew up and, like, when you grew up, too, is, like, the difference in Hollywood and how to portray gay characters. Like, that's the biggest shift I've seen in in my life. Right. And so I remember in the 90s, you know, when it was considered really brave and progressive for Robin Williams to say, like, here I am, a giant movie star. I'm going to play a gay character to as, like, a step towards, like, normalizing gay characters on screen, gay stories, gay romance. And, and fun, like a really fun. Brave. It's not like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Not that yeah. that's any sight on Tom Hanks, but it's like, it is like, hey, we're just normal. It's not, it's, there's no stakes there, you know, which is kind right. of a, yeah. Exactly. But that was, it was considered like a ballsy thing to do. Like, I'm going to lend my star power to this. Whereas now you wouldn't greenlight it the same way. In part because right. like, because of Robin Williams taking that first step, but it, you know, then you kind of look back at the original film and you kind of, you can feel two ways about it. Like one, it would be great if the birdcage, yes, had been made with like a gay cast. And today you definitely make it with a gay cast. But back then you really couldn't. And it's it's been complicated to kind of talk about. Like I interviewed Hilary Swank a couple years ago 
And, you know, she was like a really unknown actress. Like uh, what she done? Karate Kid 3. Yeah, when right. She um, played Brendan Tina in Boys Don't Cry. Is she yeah. terrible in that film? I had never seen She's not terrible in that film, but that movie is bad. My kids got really into Karate Kid and I was holding back the next Karate Kid and then they saw it pop up on iTunes. And just like we watched Like Mike 2 today, Like Mike 1 is very good, but. Uh, like Mike 2? There's a like Mike too without the original cast, um, but uh, but yeah, it's sort of like I was like, wow, I was watching. I was like, this is, yeah. this is really like it's really bad. It's yeah. really bad. Yeah. But yeah, but so then, for her to play Brendan Tina, you know, um, in the '90s for Boys Don't Cry and get you know the Oscar for that and get the acclaim, now it's become a thing that she, you know, takes kind of I don't know if it's apologizing necessarily, but when that film gets brought up, she stops and she's like. You know, she's made, I don't, reparations is a weird word for it, but like she's become such a big activist in the LGBTQ community to try to say like, my career was built on this film and I need to give back to it too. Like I'm aware that like, you know, that I should not have been cast in that part today, like if it was remade. And so there's that kind of like, you become a trailblazer who then has to kind of apologize a little bit for it, you know, right. or or do what you can to try to balance it out. I mean, even actually Kristen Stewart was talking about this when it came to, um, gosh, I, you know, I hate the name of that stupid film, The Holiday Season, The Greatest, the, right. whatever. The, what is the name of it? Because I will forget it nine times. It's the most generic title ever. It's, the uh, Happiest Season, The Happiest Season. The Happiest season. season, yeah. But she was, you know, somebody asked her, like when she was doing press for that, how do you feel about straight actors being cast in gay roles and vice versa? And her, she said, you know. I'm aware that even me talking about it, like I come to it with a little bit of privilege, like I'm a thin white actress. Um, but she said, where I feel about it is if if I if I held the line on that, you know, then I wouldn't feel like I could be cast in straight roles and I wouldn't want to limit myself in that direction either. And she said, like, if you do the work to be welcomed in a community and you do the research and you care about it, then that works. But if you if you try to do the work to and you approach a community and you're not welcome to tell that story, then you need to respect that and let other people tell that story. So she's totally, trying to like yeah. split the difference because I feel like it gets it's a really polarizing conversation. It is. Look, I, I I mean to be you know quite honest and you know I I am also a character who uh, I'm an actor who plays a character that you know uh, in the first season of my show is is coming ter to terms with being gay you know he's bisexual and and now you know as the show progresses he is now outwardly gay and it was something that i really wrestled with and wanted to make sure that i did in a way that felt truthful and i had a lot of conversations about it and i had a lot of trepidation about doing something and uh because i didn't want to be on the other side of it but i also was really challenged by the role and i could also identify with things and i'm continuing to learn and talk to people in in that community to make sure that I am doing that character justice because it was a great opportunity for me. Uh, it also is something that, you know, I don't want to take a job away from someone else. And our show is actually a show that has a lot of interesting casting on it. So that was, you know, part of my decision as well. Like it wasn't just a, uh, a straight male white cast, but it's, it's, it, you know, it's something that I feel like went from people not thinking of these things to, People at least having the conversation, at least being aware. And, 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 and I don't know if there's a, there's a one size fits all, you know, cause obviously every actor is a different person. And, you know, I think that the idea is that you just want to make sure that there's a place at the table for everybody. Um, yeah. I mean, and, anything, and yeah. I would just like to kind of put a pin in all of it 
and say, I guess as viewers, it'd be nice if we could approach things with generosity forward in time and backward in time, Mm -hmm. because people of the future will look at our attitudes towards culture and be like, y'all were some backwards people. And so it's, and I feel like it's really easy to even watch guests who's coming to dinner and rip it apart. Like if somebody could watch this movie and rip it apart and they could be really justified, but then it's takes another step to kind of sit there in 1967 with this moment and this cast, you know, and look at the good intentions and try to like sift through and figure out what works. I mean, Sidney Poitier even tells a story about meeting Catherine Hepburn and Spencer, Spencer Tracy for the first time. They went to dinner. Yeah. And um, when they had a dinner, he said that he could feel them sizing him up. Like, we know this is kind of a risky film. Do we want to go on this journey with you? And he had that feeling of like, I'm an Oscar winner. I don't like being sized up by these people. And I don't like that they're like two older white actors sizing me up from an older generation, which is a completely thousand percent valid feeling. And and to me, as somebody who loves Catherine Hepburn deeply, like deeply, I'm, I also really like knowing that story, even if it's not super flattering to her, because it helps me understand more about where she came from in Hollywood, that she could be at this progressive sphere in Hollywood and yet still be in a really isolated world where she didn't come across too many black people. And that makes me understand how limited that world was. You know, everything, everything I think has historical value to learn about, even if the yeah. stories aren't always great. It To me, it's, it's a constant, like you said in the beginning, like we are all like the journey that we are on, if you consider yourself progressive, it is a lifelong journey that, uh, that you will stumble and fall a lot in trying to just keep moving forward. And the idea is that you just keep on getting up and you make mistakes and you learn and you read and, uh, and you listen. I mean, I think that's the idea too. You listen and, and you trust that people will, will protect you. And if your intent is right, you move forward. And, and I think that in a way, here's three people, you know, at that dinner who are going, do we trust each other enough to tackle this and protect each other and listen to each other and respect each other on how we want to do this, you know? And, uh, and it's interesting because we're, we're saying all this stuff about Sidney Poitier, but that's, of the mindset of the sixties. I don't think that anyone who sees him now looks at him and goes, Oh, well, this guy was, uh, he didn't do it enough. He didn't push enough. I think what you realize is, Oh, how far we've come, what he did, how the doors that he opened. And we can look back at him and like, yes, he may have had this, he may have lived through a more difficult, uh, you know, uh, microscope of him and what he did, but the after effects of it don't really shine through. It's like, you don't look at him and go, Oh boy, Sunday morning really sold out. Because this movie is funny. It's good. It's like, I, I was riveted. I was like, I, I was like, I'm all in this movie, you know, and, and again, we're watching all these movies. I'm, I'm really enjoying them. And I'm, I was actually thinking this week, I'm like, is this bad that I'm, I'm enjoying all of these movies? But I'm also just like, no, I, they're great movies and they're fun to talk about. I, you know, and yes, it may have all these little things, but it still works. I would say even more than The Graduate, honestly. Maybe. Ooh, ooh chipping yeah. away at the legacy of The Graduate. You know, I love to see it. Well, but you know what? It, it, it reminded me of The Graduate, like right, uh, because there was something about it, like the San Francisco of it, the the time of it. There was something about it that was like this idea also of youth and, uh, but there's a malaise there. That that's a whole. There's very different ideas at play, but I don't know. There, there was something really. So I think I was surprised by it, and I think whenever I can watch a movie on this show and have no 
expectation of what I'm watching. I love it. It's like how I love to see movies in the theater. It's like, I don't know what I'm here for. Oh, that was fun. You know, but I think once I start to put an idea of what I'm seeing, like I was last night going like, okay, can I watch this? Like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf style movie? It's going to like bum me out and it's going to be intense and a lot of schmacting. And, uh, and it's not that at all. I mean, structurally, it's funny because I think as progressive as this film is in content for the absolute month that it was made, Mm -hmm. it feels really old fashioned. You know, like the whole last half of it is just people having conversations in different combinations. Right. It's like you go over here, you go over here. Now you go over here. It it becomes kind of laughable. It's like I come into the room. Now you have to leave the room. Yeah. I come into the room and now you have to leave the room. And now you're talking to him. And it's just a bazillion different permutations. And I was thinking how fun it is that when all of these people are still walking around and being like, I have to talk over here, blah, 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 that the one conversation we see that is not planned, you know, when, um, when Spencer Tracy comes outside to tell Sidney Poitier, who's talking to his mother, that Sidney Poitier's dad wants to talk to him, which I want to play a little bit of that talk too, mm-hmm. the, between Sidney and his dad. Um, what happens is Spencer Tracy gets awkwardly stuck in conversation with Sidney Poitier's mom, who he never meant to talk to. Like he never really intended to sit down and be like, I need to hear her, hear her thoughts about it. And when he does, that's the conversation that winds up having the most impact, the, the kind of accidental right. conversation that yeah. puts them together, where she, um, where the actress Bea Richards gives this great speech. What happens to men when they grow old? Why do they forget everything? I believe those two young people need each other like they need the air to breathe in. Anybody can see that by just looking at them. But you and my husband are, you might as well be blind men. You can only see that they have a problem. But do you really know what's happened to them? How they feel about each other? I believe that men grow old. And when the when sexual things no longer matter to them, they forget it all. Forget what true passion is. If you ever felt what my son feels for your daughter, you've forgotten everything about it. My husband, too. You knew once. But that was a long time ago. Now the two of you don't know. And this strange thing for your wife and me is that you don't even remember. If you did, how could you do what you were doing? I want to say a minute about Bea Richards, by the way. You know, she... She's a really, really interesting woman. I mean, she was actually, she had known Sydney Poitier forever. Like she was an understudy on Raisin in the Sun. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fascinating. I feel like we keep coming back to that Broadway and film production of Raisin in the Sun, that it's just this moment where like all of these actors, old, young, new, rising, you know, Glenn Thurman, like we're, on, we're right. at that one play and it kind of it had everybody working together. And then they formed these bonds that keep appearing and reappearing and reappearing. I think I think Roy Glenn was even in that too. Yeah, he was in Raising in Raising in the Sun too. They were all in that movie. Kind of like how Eve's bio even is like kind of a crystallization where you get, you know, 
Journey yeah. Smollett, knowing Samuel L. Jackson, knowing um, knowing Debbie, knowing everybody in that film. It's kind of coolly high even like seeing these moments where like these generations kind of come together and like form artistic bonds that pay off later. She knew him from there, but she's a really interesting person. She's a playwright on her own accord. She wrote a play called A Black Woman Speaks. And then she was also known for being like part of the Communist Party. And she's just this really interesting like artistic figure who I don't know if I would know her work if I hadn't come across it in this film. And it's easy to kind of overlook those parents and like the whole star well, spangled yeah, everybody else. Yeah, because it's like they they can you know because of the moment you're like, oh well they're not famous. So they're like, why did they yeah. get these like two yeah, unknowns? Yeah. Exactly. And and it made me want to like look up more about Roy Glenn for that same reason, you know, who plays the father. And he I think his career shows such an interesting arc. Like he is an actor who back in the thirties literally played Uncle Tom in a cartoon. Wow. Like he was the voice of Uncle Tom in um an early Mary Melodies called like Uncle Tom's Bungalow. <laughs> That's cute. And here comes old Uncle Tom now. Yet he kind of sees it. Just look at those old knees shaking. Brother, my knees ain't shaking. I'm chucking. And so he has that kind of career of you know, accepting the parts he can get and hoping that there will be better parts in the future. And I like the idea of him seeing Sidney Poitier and then being brought into this fold and getting to do important artistic stuff and play a, a, a real character, you know, after coming out of that history of like being stuck, taking what you can get. He was also a voice in Song of the South. He played one of the frogs. And so oh, wow. even just in him, you see kind of the arc of what was available, which is good. Like, I, I was glad to like kind of get to stop and take a look and appreciate his performance. But he has that scene against Sidney Poitier that I want to play because I think the content of it is really interesting. But also, if I can say there's a couple flaws, I do think Sidney Poitier is too old to give this like generational speech. Like when he's like my generation man. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, he kind of doesn't buy it coming from a 30s. I mean, when you're 37 in 1967, you're basically like 75 today, right? Like people just yeah. grew up so fast. Well, I mean, it is it is interesting to like when they they when they label him as having a wife and a kid, you're like, oh, wow, he's so like, like, there is something about like, he's falling in the middle of the culture, like he's closer to the parents and he is, you know, that, that but it shows like these three points of view that are uniquely different. Yeah, but his his middle agedness, I think, kind of throws off the generational warfare of it. Part of me wishes that they had been able to find like, a younger person to play that role. But let's listen yeah. to him take a crack at that line anyway. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me. Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing. If you carried that bag a million miles, you did what you were supposed to do. Because you brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me. Like I will owe my son if I ever have another. But you don't own me. You can't tell me when or where I'm out of line or try to get me to live my life according to your rules. You don't even know what I am, Dad. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I feel, what I think. And if I tried to explain it the rest of your life, you will never understand. You are 30 years older than I am. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. And not until your whole generation has lain down and died will the dead weight of you be off our backs. You understand? You've got to get off my back. Also, can I say, like, you know, he has these two 
fiery conversations in this film. Like he's usually very calm and trying to make sure everybody else is staying calm. Yeah. He has this scene with his dad and he has the other one um, with Isabel, with um, the maid, um, oh, Tilly. Well, Tilly is her name, but Isabel Sanford, who actually we know from like the Jeffersons. Yes. Um, and that conversation is weird because I keep feeling like he just has a completely different personality in it, right? Like she comes in to yell at him and the camera right. goes all crooked and crazy. Like it gets all canted angle. Like it's a modern film suddenly. Yeah, so like yeah. She can yell at him. Oh, um, and didn't that remind you of? Uh, didn't that remind you of Get Out though? Too like when they don't do they do like something very similar with the like, like the Gerard. yeah yeah. But let's listen to that because it pops out to me how the Isabel character is the only person in the film that he treats with disrespect, and it pops because I found I found that really weird. I got something to say to you, boy. Just exactly what you're trying to pull here. I'm not trying to pull anything. I was looking to find me a wife. Ain't that just likely? You want to answer me something? What kind of doctor are you supposed to be anyhow? Would you believe horse? <laughs> oh, you make with witticisms and all, huh? Well, let me tell you something. You may think you're fooling Miss Joy and her folks, but you ain't fooling me for a minute. You think I don't see what you are? You're one of those smooth-talking, smart-ass niggas just out for all you can get with your black power and all that other troublemaking nonsense. And you listen here. I brought up that child from a baby in her cradle, and ain't nobody gonna harm her none while I'm here watching. And as long as you are anywhere around this house, I'm right here watching. You read me, boy? You bring any trouble in here, and you just like to find out what black power really means. And furthermore to that, you ain't even all that good looking. I mean, right? He's like making fun of her things. He's like, I'm I'm a doctor of horses. Yeah. He feels like a totally different person. And that's one of the moments where I think the script leading into comedy. Right. I don't know if he makes that leap in that scene. Like, it doesn't feel like at all. Like, I mean, they're like, why are you so rude to Isabel? Like, poor Isabel, honestly, like she's kind of the heavy, you know, because she's the one who's like loudly saying everything is wrong. Which yeah. is kind of weird that they put it on her, um, even over Spencer Tracy, but that everybody just yells at her the whole movie. Like Catherine, the daughter, who oh by the way is like Kate Hus Kate um, Hepburn's niece. That Catherine's always telling her to cook and treating her like kind of like shit. Like you better get that. Go get another steak. Like everybody right. bosses her around. So the fact that she digs in her heels and gets mad back, I'm like, that woman is the only woman in the person in the film who doesn't get any respect. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something interesting here, too. Like, we're talking about, like, racism. We're talking about ageism. We're talking about also uh, a level of misogyny. Like, that, that we talked about earlier, like, this conversation, you know, that these two women have that they're not supposed to have. Like, this movie is working on a lot of levels. Like, what are the things that we do, what we're not supposed to do, the roles that we have, the roles that we're not supposed to have? It's everyone is following a pattern of what is expected of them but not questioning why it's expected of them, right? On some level. And then when yeah. they break it, they're finding themselves. I mean, you don't really see it for Isabel Sanford, but, uh, but, they're, but they're breaking it and they're like, oh, yeah, why am I doing that? Like, and I feel like everyone has that realization except for her, but she's yeah. not really afforded that. She's not really afforded it. Like she's basically told to like, sit down, shut up. You hear what we're saying? You agree with it now. Get out of here. Like she's- yeah. The last <laughs> line in the film is like, when are we going to get some dinner? And it's like, she's been yeah. cooking all day. Y'all have been yeah. putting off dinner. Like this is yeah. on you. It, it is, I think the, the where I felt my 2020 eyes coming into view in this film was- my awareness for the first time, how weird it is that this is a movie where everybody is depending on Spencer Tracy to say whether it's okay. Yeah. Like to me, that feels like very patriarchal. Like everybody is like, 
well, if Spencer Tracy, the old white man, says it's fine, then it's fine. And the film is like at the end, him giving this long speech where he says it's fine and therefore it will be fine. And the and that Spence and that Sidney Poitier's dad, who also doesn't think it's fine, he's just told, Well, you'll get along with it later. Like yeah, I, yeah it's kinda like we have waited for you to come around, old white man, and but now it, everything is fine. But I mean, isn't it I mean Going back to the uh, the murder mystery analogy, isn't it the idea that like he takes on the Columbo role and he's like, I figured out the mystery. You can all put it together later. Like Columbo doesn't like no one asks Columbo for like the research, right? Like, I mean, he can he can draw the lines, but like he could also be a kook and say like, yeah, she had the knife in his room. And like, you know, no one's like, wait a second. Hold on, Mr. Columbo. Wait, can we see this or how did you know this? Uh, so I do think that there is an element of I, I agree exactly with what you're saying, but I think that he's the conduit and what that moment is so great where he's out on the the deck and he's like, huh? Oh, fuck. I get it now. (laughs) Like, like he just like, like the light is going to dawn for everybody, but it just like, he was the first one who sparked, but yet like the two wives, they spark, you know, they spark unintentionally uh, or not, you know, like everyone is sparking. Um, Mm. He just kind of, puts the bow around the whole thing because you can't have seven speeches go, he's right. Uh, you know, then, then the movie becomes, uh, a little bit too preachy. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. And I, I do like, uh, yeah, you know, it, I mean, it, I, yeah. Well, and when he gave that speech at the test screening that they did, like the whole audience burst into tears, like Sidney wow. Kramer was like, I saw big, strong men crying. And he said he wasn't, he was surprised because he didn't, want the film to be a tearjerker like that was never his intention mm-hmm. and he wasn't sure what exactly was causing it except he thought maybe it wasn't the film maybe it was just spencer tracy himself you know because this is his last film he gosh we I don't, we didn't get to do any spencer tracy films did we in the afi top 100 there wasn't one what that's really oh, i don't wow. think so that's a damn shame and this is his eighth film that he'd done with katherine hepburn you know they had been this long-term screen yeah. partnership going back forever and there's so much contradictory you know, information or gossip on like his relationship with Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. You know, that he was, he never divorced his first wife. Like they stayed together until he died. But Catherine Hepburn was living with him in the last couple of years, although they weren't sharing a bedroom. You know, she was like living basically in the maid's quarters off the kitchen. And she was, li- she had her own like mansion on top of a, a hill here in Hollywood. But she was living in the the windowless like maid's quarters because he had been so sick and she wanted to be there with him at all times. Oh, wow. Like she wanted to just make sure he was okay, take care of him. She spent a lot of the 60s not even working herself because she didn't want to leave him alone. And like she was offered great parts and she said, you know, I can't leave him. Like he's not feeling well. I need to right. be there with him. And so she would sometimes try to push him to take work because she would also want to do it too. Feel like if he right, could yeah, work, yeah. then she could work with him. Um, that's she could like watch lot. over him, right? Yeah, like yeah. she was like, yeah. That's a lot of how Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came together. Is like Stanley Kramer was a really close friend of theirs, and she was like, put him to work. He's like just sitting in a rocking chair, acting like he's dying. You know, we need to keep him busy. And she wanted to work with him one last time. And I mean, their relationship is just so close and so devoted. So that I think, you know, if you're an audience in 1967, and these are kind of like your on-screen parents, you've seen them in so many films, to have a moment where 
Spencer Tracy gets to talk about his love for her at the very end of the film. Mm-hmm. I think that more than any sort of message about politics in America is what got people crying. I mean, listen to it, to hear him say, I love this woman. Old, yes. Burned out, certainly. But I can tell you, the memories are still there. Clear, intact, indestructible. And they'll be there if I live to be 110. Where John made his mistake, I think, was attaching so much importance to what her mother and I might think. Because in the final analysis, it doesn't matter damn what we think. The only thing that matters is what they feel and how much they feel for each other. And if it's half of what we felt, that's everything. By the way, if anybody wants to get a little misty, or maybe it's just me, um, you know, I found a clip of Catherine Hepburn talking about Spencer Tracy after his death. This is actually almost nearly 20 years after his death, where she woke up and she decided um, to write him a letter. And so she went and read a little bit of the letter. Uh, allowed. Dear Spence, whoever thought that I'd be writing you a letter? You died on the 10th of June in 1967. My golly, Spence, that's 15. No, it's 18 years ago. That's a long time. Are you happy finally? Is it a nice long rest you're having? Making up for all your tossing and turning in life? You were a killer, a priest, a fisherman, a sports writer, a judge, a newspaper man. You were it in a moment. You you hardly had to study. You learned the lines in an instant. What a relief. You could be someone else for a while. You weren't you. You were safe. Back to life's trials. Oh, hell. Take a drink. No, yes, maybe. Then stop taking the drink. You were great at that, Spence. You were great. You could just stop. How I respected you for that. Very unusual. Well, you said on this subject, never safe until you're seven feet underground. But why the escape hatch? Why was it always opened to get away from the remarkable you? What was it, Spence? What was it? I meant to ask you, did you know what it was? What What did you say? I can't hear you. By the way, as I'm just rhapsodizing about Catherine Hepburn for a second, we just have to play the scene where she fires Hillary, the girl who works at the gallery with her, because yeah, it's great. Hillary, I think, is also a great example of somebody who comes in, acts really nice, says all the very nice, polite yeah. things like I wish you all the happiness. I can't wait to see you again. And something in her demeanor, I'll admit, I didn't quite pick up on it when I first watched the film. I rewound it. Yeah, I was like, what What? What did they notice? What did they notice? But like, Catherine Hepburn does not like the way that she's talking about this, her her daughter and her daughter's um, husband-to-be, and fires her in probably the smoothest firing scene I've ever seen. Just done with um, that Hepburnian screwball patter, knocking you over, so many words coming out at you, Charm. Christina. Oh, my poor dear, what a shock for you. I knew something was up when I came into the gallery. But this, whatever you're going to do about it? I mean, the child is of age. You yes, have the child is 23. Hillary, why didn't you simply bring up with the Castlet information? 
Well, I must admit, I was intensely curious. I, I simply couldn't believe it. I mean, it's so unlike Joey to do anything so appallingly stupid. Yes, come along, Hillary. But, darling, what you must be going through. She was trying not to worry about it. Oh. Now, I have some instructions for you. I want you to go straight back to the gallery. Start your motor. When you get to the gallery, tell Jennifer that she will be looking after things temporarily. She's to give me a ring if there's anything she can't deal with herself. Then go into the office and make out a check for cash for the sum of $5,000. Then carefully, but carefully, Hillary, remove absolutely everything that might subsequently remind me that you had ever been there, including that yellow thing with the blue bulbs which you have such an affection for. Then take the check for $5,000, which I feel you deserve, and get permanently lost. It's not that I don't want to know you, Hillary, although I don't. It's just that I'm afraid we're not really the sort of people that you can afford to be associated with. Don't speak, Hillary. Just go. I just, I, I adore Catherine Hepburn. And I know that we didn't adore the films of hers that we had on the list before. Um, Philadelphia Story and Bring yeah. Your Baby. That Those didn't seem to go over quite well. But... I can't imagine a list without a Katherine Hepburn film or a Spencer Tracy film. And no, maybe absolutely. What we do is we just like, I don't know if this will make it to space, but maybe we get rid of all of those other screwball comedies and pick one of hers with Spencer Tracy. Kiki Grant's be... got enough films. Jimmy Stewart's got enough films. Yeah, them around. I'm down for that. I mean, look, I would argue that the reason why this is an emotional movie too is is her reaction to him. You know, it's it's her tears and her eyes watching him do that monologue that get me. It's not necessarily him. And, yeah. But that tandem is beautiful. I mean, that's a beautiful, like, I mean, that's, you know, that's a great duo. That's kind of like your um, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. You want to have that kind of like passing <laughs> oh plan. God. You're, I mean, honestly, I will say that is a weird thing about the film is she looks like she's going to cry the entire film. Pretty yeah. much every time you look yeah. at her in the second hour, her eyes are soaking wet, like just glistening. I mean, she... And we found out later it was an eye infection. It's weird. Wow. Weird how Ooh, I... Weird. How dare uh, But I mean, but Amy, no, I, I think you're right. And I, I, I'm, I'm down for that. And I think we should explore that. We should have like a, a mini series where we just call like Paul and Amy explore ideas that we've talked about once in the show. And oh that would be God, great. to so many. I often say that in, you know, this idea that like the alchemy of something is the most important part, right? All these things have to come together. And when they all come together... If the right ingredients are there, it's a hit. It's a, you, you can't say it would be right. Like, uh, this is a terrible example, but I'll use it anyway. But like, is Iron Man a hit without Robert Downey Jr.? I don't know. Maybe not. It was that, that role, that persona, mm-hmm. and that character in a moment that all, you know, rocketed off and, and started a gigantic juggernaut of this MCU. Um, but you do that movie with, uh, you know somebody else and it doesn't it doesn't all it doesn't pull together and and i think that like this is why this movie resonates this is why this movie's around this is why these are great actors and whatever that dinner is going back to that dinner where everyone's sizing each other up it is they are three um titans mm-hmm. who are all going okay we're going to use our power to speak truth to power and uh i need to go in here knowing we all have each other's back because what we're doing is not dangerous, but it could fall flat. It could be a movie that sucks. It could be a movie that sets a movement back, especially because Loving versus Virginia is not even pushed forward at this point. It There's so much 
there's so many mistakes that could be made here. And the fact that they didn't make a mistake, the fact that it did make that so much money, they did it right. And yes, there'll be think pieces on this, but we still celebrated its 50-year anniversary uh, three years ago. And um, this movie will still be celebrated, even if it's not on the list or we still send it up to space. I mean, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, and you can see that that alchemy just by the fact that they kept trying to recapture it. I mean, what, like eight years after this, Stanley Kramer tried to turn it into a sitcom. Yes, Where like weird. the Catherine Hepburn role is going to be played by my beloved Baroness from Sound of Music, Eleanor Parker, like the the unsung hero of the Sound of Music. But it, they just did a pilot and it didn't even work off. Or Or you could even say like, what happened when you tried to remake this film like 15 years ago and oh have it star Bernie Mac Kutcher and Bernie Mac and be called, guess who? This is Simon. That's a boy for name, isn't it? Yeah. Percy, I need you to be nice. Always nice. You didn't tell me it was why. What, there are no available young black men in New York anymore? It's about first impressions. Oh, where is he? It's about being yourself. Is this yours or mine? Simon. It fits so perfect, baby. You take, take it off. You take it off. Something about the boy just ain't right. It's about just getting along. How long have you two been together? See, Teresa counts from the first day that we met, and I count from the first. You know, I was thinking. And honestly, Zoe Saldana, by the way, let's not, Zoe... not, yeah, not to give, uh, give some props to Zoe Saldana. Always giving props to Zoe Saldana. But I was thinking, honestly, I think a lot of the reason why this film has lingered in pop culture is just because of the title. Can I be honest? It's mm. such a catchy, templomatic title that you can fill in the blank with like 8 million things that I knew this title before I knew what it was about, right? In yeah. fact, I didn't even realize that the guest who's coming to dinner was actually about his parents. You know, that it's like, yes, that's when they say it. it's not really about Sydney. It's like, but oh, no, it's couldn't. But couldn't it be for everybody? I mean, guests are coming to dinner. Yeah. The priest. Guests are coming priest. to dinner. Everyone, everyone's yeah. coming to dinner. Everyone's coming it, to dinner. Yeah. Everyone's coming for the murder mystery dinner theater. Yeah. Or it's really like everyone's coming to watch The Bachelor with like, uh, you know, uh, yeah. with um, Spencer Tracy being like, I have a decision to make. I have a decision to make. Everybody's got their decision of like who's going to go home and who's getting the rose. But no, that um, this title is so iconic. I actually was like, I've heard it so much. It just seems like it's part of the permanent, you know, guess who's coming to brunch? Guess who's mm-hmm. coming to the bat mitzvah? Guess who's not coming to dinner? Right. That I looked up how many sitcoms have actually used a version of this title. And oh, it wow. is ridiculous. I'm just going to read a list. I'm going to probably have to take several breaths because here we go. <gasps> sitcoms that have used a version of the guess who's coming to dinner title as an episode title. <clears throat> Green Acres, Hogan's Heroes, The Flying Nun, The Partridge Family, Scooby-Doo, Happy Days, Taxi, The Jeffersons, The Facts of Life, Who's the Boss, Golden Girls, Growing Pains, The New Lassie, The Real Ghostbusters, The French The Fresh The French Prince of Gal- The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Night Court, LA Law, Murphy Brown, California Dreams, Saved by the Bell, Frasier, Married with Children, Step by Step, Sisters, Grace Under Fire, Baywatch, Will and Grace, Third Rock from the Sun, Dawson's Creek, Just Shoot Me, George Lopez, According to Jim, The Boondocks, The Venture Brothers, My Name is Earl, House of Pain, Battlestar Galactica, The New Adventures of Old Christine, Last Man Standing, Scandal, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Grey's Anatomy, and The Simpsons. Wow. Oh, and I left out one that paraphrased the title. I'm going to play this clip from Designing Women. You can probably guess what the title of this episode was called. Here it's about a prom date. She's going with a real sweet boy, too. Oh, who is it? 
Oh, just a teenager. Nobody you'd know. I just met him myself for the first time this morning. I was so impressed. I mean, they're just in junior high, and he just shook my hand and everything. That is unusual. Yeah, he's an excellent student, captain of the debate team, runs track, plays football. He's also black. He's black? Yeah, what's wrong with that? Nothing. I was just kind of surprised, that's all. I don't know why. He's a perfectly wonderful kid. I've never seen a boy that age with manners like that, and he plays football, too. Did I mention that? Yeah, you did. What position? Well, I don't know, but I'm sure it's a good one. Hey, Joe, I don't see a thing wrong with Claudia going to the school dance with her young black friend. I'm sure lots of parents would get all up in arms about it, but I'm glad you're not one of them. No, I think it's no big deal. That makes two no big deals. Anyway, if y'all need me, I'll be in the storeroom. Well, I don't know. I mean, these interracial things can get pretty complicated. Did you ever see that movie? What movie? Something about, there's some black people coming over for dinner. <laughs> yes, this episode of Designing Women was called, as you hear from Delta Burke, there's black people coming for dinner. <sighs> wow. Okay, there you go. So, uh, <laughs> well, you know what? I, it's interesting because you're right. The title exists bigger than the film. I knew the title. I didn't know the movie. I understood what it roughly was about. Um, but I was thinking about something else interesting there, too. I watched the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh, reunion, uh, which is great. It's on HBO Max. Uh, really well done. And it was really interesting how they tackled issues like this, um, you know, in a, in a sitcom. And, and there's ways that I think, I know we talked about this a few times, but the tone of this movie um, and the way that you can introduce a concept that's a little bit harder with characters that you love. Like, I mean, like there's a whole episode of Fresh Prince where they're talking about, you know, how Carlton needs to treat a police officer. Carlton is from this background where he doesn't have to, you know, doesn't understand that there's a way that uh, police officers interact with, you know, black people. And, and Will is kind of teaching him that. And, and uh, anyway, my point being that this movie sets up a nice blueprint for tackling tough issues in a light way, in a way with people that you love that I think moves the needle forward. Um, and I think that that's, I've talked about Will and Grace. We talked about Birdcage. And I think we're always doing that. We're always trying to, all right, Blackish, a beautiful example of a show that let's, let's tackle these issues. Let's do it, but let's do it from a place of humor. Let's get people on board. Let's not preach. Let's, you know, let's show by example. There's so much there. And, and then maybe it's, it's, it's too uh, naive of me to say, well, this is the first movie that really does that. But there is a a legacy that this movie leaves behind, which is like, we can talk about everything. And maybe the best way to talk about everything is in a way that's a little bit lighter, a little bit more relatable, a little less punching down and a little bit more punching up and, and looking at ourselves and our own infallibilities. You're right. And maybe my role as a critic and other people's role as audience is as much as we'll probably want to and probably will make fun of when we get like, say, in 10 years, the Josh Gad version of this where it's about, you know, a transgender person coming to dinner and him being like, oh, I, let me learn about this topic in this film. Maybe we have to give people the space to make embarrassing things if it's better for the culture. And then we get to like this, the charming normal version that's like well, where look, everybody is the same and it's not like a hot button and there's no reaction shots to a dog. I mean, look, the curb did a whole trans plot line last year. That was really interesting with Chaz Bono, you know, and, 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 you know, and it was treated in a way that had very 
curb elements to it, but also wasn't like, what the heck, you know? And, and I think, look, that makes a dent. These little things make a dent. All these small moves make a dent. And, and it's unfortunate when you want to move, you want to move the whole, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm old school. Like I'm saying we should move the ball slowly. And other people out there are like, fuck it. No, look, there's so many movements going on right now. It's like, let's not move the ball slowly. It's, we got, we have majority. Let's go. And, and yeah, and I go back and forth on that too. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm, I'm already in that, I'm already in that, uh, Sydney Poitier camp. So I have to challenge myself and be like, no, fuck it. Blow it up. Let's try to blow it all up. Like, why do we have to move slow? But I think all I'm saying is let's not attack the people who move slow because at least they're moving forward. Uh, and there's a lot of people who don't even try to move forward. And we shouldn't be attacking the people who are at least trying. Yeah. Although even at the time, guess who's coming to dinner came out. There were a lot of negative reviews. I was going to ask. So hit <laughs> me up. What do you got? Yeah. I pulled just little snippets from four of them. Um, tiny snippets. Don't worry. I'm not going to keep you here all day. Uh, but um, Bernard Drew from Gannett News, he's called it obvious cliche-ridden, on-the-nose, and vulgarly pointed. Mitra Schickel of Time called it an embarrassing social situation unaccountably prolonged, which one can only twitch through. He said it was smug and patronizing. He says the daughter is an imbecile and that Sidney Poitier is such a paragon of virtues that it is impossible to believe in him as a human being regardless of his race, creed, or skin color. And that he is truly sorry that an actor of Spencer Tracy's admirable honesty had to make his last appearance in a film as dishonest as this one. Uh, Newsweek said that from the story to the filming technique of the painted sunsets, plastic flowers, and floodlights, it seems an absolute antique, and there is nothing so powerless as an idea whose time has come and gone. And the Christian Science Monitor said, you know, the real problem with this film is that it does not state a position. It says Kramer cops out, and it calls it almost useless as a film. It says Tracy never really faces his prejudice, and the film never plums the nature of the white man's sin or how the American black man experiences it. He calls the maid and Sidney Poitier's dad, Amos and Andy, caricatures. And he says he does not understand how Poitier himself missed the obvious bigotry of this film disguised as white liberalism. And his last line, I thought actually, actually, I thought was worth really listening to. He says, because the film does not take pain seriously, its comedy is distractingly superficial. Oh, interesting. I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, but I, I like that he pinpoints the idea that there is a pain and an anger missing from this. And maybe, I mean, as Kramer was saying, even to Catherine Houghton, like maybe this isn't that film. Like, but I, why, I do, we to have to, why do we always have to tackle that was, it? Like actually more like angry and maybe with like less perfect people. I'd love to see a second film. I but guess right, me, like, why do I be mad at this film when I want a second film? But I mean, and also like, why do we have to tackle tough issues in a, in a dramatic way? Right? Like life is tough. Uh, some of the hardest things I've gone through there's brevity and light and airiness and there's gallows humor and stuff like that. And I think that we're too attuned to dealing with negative shit um, in a way that has to be like too dark, uh, you know, because, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that comedy is going to uh, that doing it lightly, having a light touch is better because I think you learn more. You don't feel like you're being lectured. But that's me. Can I lecture you? Can I just come yeah, over please, and lecture, lecture me? About, yeah, like, please. Yeah. I don't know, uh, how to wash your towels. I've been really been trying to learn how to wash towels properly. Uh, now I can oh give boy. a good lecture on it. Oh my gosh. Um, well, Amy, I think we talked a lot about like this movie and where it fits in society. And I think we both alluded, I don't know if this goes on the hundred list. I right? don't think so. I mean, it was yeah. already really low, even in 1997. I think it was like at 99. I think even in 99, or 
it was ranked 99 in 97 because I think already people felt like it was a little bit of an antique, honestly. Right. Um, as that one critic said decades earlier. So no, I don't think it goes on, but I think I'm really glad we had this conversation. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, uh, I, um, well, I'm glad we did too. Um, what a great conversation to have and excited to continue this next week with a brand new, uh, a brand new film, which is uh, Lulu Wang's Farewell, a movie that was very popular uh, last year. And I'm excited to put it in this mix because um, I think it's important to look at new films and old films. And uh, this movie definitely captures a different type of family. And uh, let's take a listen to the trailer. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Manan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Don't you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, Nana will find out right away. Really? All right, well, The Farewell is available wherever you can stream your films. Uh, Go get it, and we'll see you next week for The Farewell. Farewell.